Now, I have a story to tell you. Last Christmas, Rebecca, who was about eight years old, she was eight last Christmas? She was nine last Christmas. Uh, we watched a new movie that had just come out called uh, Inside Out. Have you seen that? How many people have seen that movie, Inside Out? Yeah. So we watched that together. It's a cute little movie. makes you feel really sad at the end. Uh, movie's about this kid that moves to, I think, San Francisco. Her name is Riley. And she goes through all the emotions of moving. She's a young girl. All her emotions are out of whack because her parents moved her, and she doesn't know how to deal with her emotions. And so each one of her emotions is pictured in this movie. And these are the emotions. It's joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness. And when our family watched it, it was, it was a, it's a cartoon, so it was kind of entertaining. It was done by Disney, so it's a good, they did a good, really good job of it. Uh, Pixar does a, does a good job. But we, after we watched the movie, the kids were like, oh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great movie. So then Christmas comes along, and my little girl, Rebecca, who was nine at the time, decides that she wanted to get me something really special. She bought it herself. She saved up her money herself, and she wanted to get it because it reminded her of me. And She wanted to make sure that she knew this was from her for her dad. And so her mom went out and took her shopping and, and she came back and she wrapped it up. And on Sunday morning, I opened her gift and here's what my daughter gave me. <laughs> she picked the one character out of this movie that reminded her most of me. And it wasn't Joy. <laughs> it was the firebrand, uh, angry, the <laughs> little guy, see him up there, his head is burning off. And she gave it to me, and I said, what? My first reaction should have been, oh, this is, I, I love it, you know. But I opened it up going, and the first thing I thought was, my little girl thinks I'm angry. <laughs> and so I, I beat her and put her to bed without her dinner. No, I didn't, no, I didn't, no, I didn't. I, um, <laughs> what I did was I did a little bit of soul searching, and I thought to myself, maybe I'm portraying a little bit too much of one emotion to, to my uh, little girls. And then I really thought about it and thought, nah, she's just off her rocker. But uh, <laughs> we come to the next uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount and end up talking about, I'm going to prop this little guy up here so you can see him all day. Um, come to this little part of the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus starts doing a lot of illustrations. His point in doing the Sermon on the Mount was to help us understand, this is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to help us understand how the law doesn't judge us at our best moments. The law judges us on every moment. So we might think to ourselves, if I'm good enough, I get to go to heaven. That is the great misconception of Christianity. And even Christians believe that. We talked about that last week, and you can download it. You can listen to it online anytime you want to. But we covered that a little bit last week. This is the moment where Jesus gets into the illustration part of things. And he starts, starts saying... Uh, illustrations that prove the point that the law judge doesn't judge us on our best moments. The law judges us on every moment. And so Jesus picks an illustration about an emotion that affects us all. And his very first illustration, the very first emotion that he picks, uh, that he picks to show us how we all fail at keeping the law. We all fail at one time or another at keeping the standard of the law is anger. Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to Matthew 5 and verse 21. Uh, it's up on the screen. What Jesus does is he doesn't just say, listen, I just want to prove to you how you all fall short of the law. He uses this illustration of anger. He also connects anger with the worst action that the law says not to do. 
He picks the most common emotion that gets us all and connects it with the worst action that the law says for us not to do. Here's what he says. You've heard it said. To those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The law says don't murder. If you murder, you're gonna be liable to judgment. Jesus says, but, 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 I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fires of hell. Ever call anyone an idiot? Airhead, bonehead, dumbhead? <laughs> My news ended with the head. Demonstrations of my anger get me into real trouble and sometimes apparently it's more obvious than I think it is. My anger, bottom line, is my anger incriminates me. Under the law, the, my anger is proof that I can't keep the law. I cannot keep constant control of my own emotions. My emotions get out of whack and I can't control them. A lot of time, the anger that I feel proves I can't control my emotions. You might be the same way. Maybe you've ever said something like, you make me so angry, right? Which is a silly thing to say because nobody can really make you angry, right? You don't have a little switch in your head that somebody goes, anger on, anger off, right? You allow yourself to get angry based on whatever you're experiencing. And it could be because you're talking to a airhead at the time and they might be doing things that feel like you've got to turn the switch on. Now we all have anger at times, right? And sometimes it's not wrong to be angry. I read an article about sex trafficking this past week. And in case you don't know this, sex trafficking is a billion, multi-billion dollar industry. Goes on today. Goes on in America. Goes on in the towns that you have driven through. Children are stolen from their homes and they're put into sex trafficking and they are made to do things that you have never seen or heard of before but are regular in their lives. One little girl, she was interviewed, she was rescued from sex trafficking ring in, I think it was Philadelphia. She uh, actually uh, talked about how her relationship with her dad had not been good and so she had fallen uh, into a friendship with a 22-year-old guy who treated her a lot better than her dad. She was about nine years old at the time. And so he treated her really well. She liked him a lot. He ended up uh, taking her away from her family and uh, bringing her flowers every day. They lived together. She, was, she, was, she loved it. Didn't, never made her do anything weird or awkward, but over a three-month period treated her like she was the best thing ever. After those three months, he introduced her to his cousins who were all pimps. And they came over with their girls and they began talking to this little nine-year-old girl about things that a nine-year-old girl should never hear about. And then they began making her do things she should never do. And over the next four years, she was doing sex acts with people she didn't know 30 times a day for the next four years. I don't even know if that's physically, I don't know if that's physically possible. Never a break, four years straight. Now when I hear stories like that, I can tell you there's certain things I'd like to do to those cousins. There's certain things that I think about in my mind that I'd like to, if I ever met them, 
I, I am, and if that doesn't make you angry, then bravo, hats off to you, but you've got to have some emotion in there that says, that's not right. Justice needs to be distributed in that situation. That little girl needs to be rescued and somebody needs to be punished. Did you know God gets angry at times? I can almost guarantee you God gets angry at those situations. Jesus fulfills the intention of God's anger perfectly because he never sinned when he got angry. And God never sins even though he gets angry. And we can also get angry, but too often we sin instead of holding our anger as righteous anger. Most of the times, anger gets the better of us. And most of the times, anger is what ruins our relationships with others. We can't control ourselves, we can't control our tongues, we can't control our thoughts. And so Jesus picks up this message, this idea in Matthew 5 about us being unable to keep the law because we're unable to control our own emotions. And he picks anger. He says, you are angry people. And somebody might say, I'm not an angry person. I beg to differ. Every one of us gets angry at times. And so many times anger gets the better of us. And typically when it does, it ruins our relationships with each other. In fact, Jesus goes down that road and he says, listen, let's just talk about anger and how anger ruins your relationships with others. This is about how our anger becomes focused against our neighbor. The road to murdering somebody begins with you having anger toward them in your heart. Now, I'm not saying you'll ever murder anybody, like commit the actual act of murder, and neither is Jesus. What he's saying is the seed that begins, the murder process, begins with anger in the heart, unable to be controlled. And let me remind you once again, the law judges the intent, not the actions. God's law does not judge the actions, it judges the intent of our hearts. This is why in Ephesians 4 and verse 31, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. All of those are emotions that eventually lead to actions, but are birthed first in the heart. There's a sin scale actually in Ephesians 4. There's a sin scale that I'd like to walk you through. And the sin scale kind of gives you an idea of how anger gets the better of us. First, it starts with irritation. Every one of us gets irritated at one time or another with people around us, right? If I were to ask you today, all right, everybody who's irritated with at least one other person this morning, maybe it didn't happen this morning, but it's an ongoing irritation, right? Like a rash you can't get rid of. Everybody who has irritated with one other person, don't do it. Raise your hand. I'll bet you almost everybody in here would raise their hand because you can think of at least one person you're irritated with. Here's the good news. Irritation is not a sin. You live in this world where people irritate you. They get under your skin. People get under my skin too. It's irritating. That's not the sin. But irritation will lead to frustration. Frustration or irritation, this this, uh, frustration idea moves you from being simply annoyed to starting to boil. It's like when you put the pot of water on the stove and you just, you hit the highest level possible and you think to yourself, why isn't it boiling yet? Well, it's starting to. This is where the water starts to boil. And so you move from annoying or irritating to frustration, and that leads to the boiling point, which is anger. Anger then leads to, this is where we cross the line, anger leads to bitterness. 
When you are angry with somebody, you can't control it, you're boiling at somebody, you will eventually be bitter toward them. You won't wanna be around them, you'll think bad thoughts about them, maybe you'll tell other people to think bad thoughts about them. You will be, every time you think of them, you'll think to yourself, man, I hope I never meet that person ever again. You're bitter toward them and you can only remember that one thing that they did to tick you off all the time. This is where the water starts to boil over. You know how water boils over? When you're cooking rice, this is the worst. It boils over and it gets into the, you know, into the grating and it all turns white and then you're, you know, you're gonna be scrubbing it for the rest of the night, right? This is where the boiling over process starts. Well, then it turns to malice. Malice is where you actually cannot uh, operate without being irritated to the point where you hope that they die or you hope that they fall or you hope that they break something or you hope that somebody keys their car or lets the air out of the car, something bad happens to them and your first response is, good, they deserve it. That's when you know you've crossed this line. This is the malice. You're irritated to the point where you want them hurt. And then you go to the final step, which is wrath. Wrath is using anger for evil. Wrath is the idea that you don't just want them to be hurt, now you hope everybody makes their lives miserable. You'd like for them to die. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, Craig, I'm, I don't think I've ever gotten to a six. Okay, how about five? <laughs> and we're not talking about five. We're talking about not even four. We're talking about three. Jesus says, be angry and do not sin. This is where anger, this is not the anger that's okay sometimes, the anger that you feel towards somebody abusing somebody else. This is the anger that turns into bitterness, and bitterness is the only poison that eats outside of its own vial. You can't contain bitterness. If you're bitter towards somebody, it's the, it's the only, this is the only, that's a step that you can, that you'll stop being able to control yourself. Matthew 5, 22. Jesus says this. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever, and here you go. I mean, we're all the way back to three. Whoever insults his brother, ever insult anybody? <laughs> will be liable to the council. Anybody cut you off when you're driving and you just say something about that person? <laughs> You'll be liable to the council. That means you're gonna go under judgment. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell fires, the fires of hell. Now, unless you think I'm making too much of how little this is, this word you fool is actually the word moros. What does that sound like? Yes, it does. It is. It's moron. You ever got to call anybody a moron? If you did, you're on your way to hell. How does that make you feel? Yeah. Especially if that somebody is your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your kids. The judgment for anger, unless you think that I'm making too much of this... <clears throat> The fires of hell, the hell, hell of fire, when you read that phrase, this is actually a reference to the Hinnom Valley. If you know anything about Jerusalem, the Hinnom Valley is right outside of Jerusalem. And when they did sacrifices, especially on the Day of Atonement, that's usually in September, they'll do the, these sacrifices and there'll be thousands and thousands of sacrifices. Everybody has to come in to sacrifice, get their high priest sacrifice. So they got the priests, all these priests are doing sacrifices. There is blood flowing through the streets. They actually had to dig ditches through the streets that led through to outside of the gate 
uh, and the blood would run under this very, um, um, very uh, popular bridge where Jesus crossed over. But anyway, the blood would run over there and it would run into the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Valley of Hinnom, this was a garbage dump. All the blood, guts, garbage, everything was there. And no, no good self-respecting Jew would be caught there. It burned day and night. Typical garbage dump, burned day and night, smelled like all get out, and you would always see the flames, sometimes more than others. And so Jesus, when he uses this phrase, that is exactly what he's saying. If you say to your brother or your sister, you fool, you'll be liable to end up over there. God is looking for holiness, not behavior modification. In other words, he doesn't want us just to go through the emotions of trying to be good because the bottom line is we won't. We fail all too often. God is not looking to modify our behavior. He's looking to give us a heart transplant. We've got to change what's in here before we change how we operate here. It has to start at the source. We've talked about this began, uh, before, but in 1 Samuel 15, 22, uh, this is reiterated so well to Saul, who said, listen, Samuel, I did everything that you asked me to do. And Samuel said, yeah, you didn't do quite everything I asked you to do. You went into battle and kept the king and kept some of the best uh, livestock. And I told you that God said, destroy everything. And Saul said, I did what was prudent at the time. And Samuel said, you disobeyed. And Saul said, I did not. I did what I thought I needed to do. And I followed the instructions almost fully to the letter, and Samuel says these great words to Saul, King Saul, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because Saul said, I brought all these animals back and I'm sacrificing them to the Lord. You should be pleased with me. And he said, no, 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 Saul, you don't get it. God is not interested in what you do out here because whatever you do out here begins in here. To obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience begins in the heart, just like anger begins in the heart. Obedience begins there as well. God is not interested in helping you manage your sin. God is interested in cutting your sin off at the source, changing your heart. Now, this is even more implicit than what we're talking about so far because if you read this part of the Sermon on the Mount closely, we are not talking about the anger in us. We're talking about the anger others have toward us. So it's even worse. Brings me to my second point. How do I respond to their anger? My response to their anger. Jesus does not talk about our personal anger anymore. He says, oh yeah, if, you, if you've called your brother or your sister an idiot, you're going to hell. I mean, you're in trouble, all right? If I said that, you'd probably look at me and go, Craig, that's a little harsh. Well, Jesus said it, so we'll give him a pass, all right? This is what Jesus said. Then he transfers and he says, what if somebody is angry toward you? Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, they're angry with you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you know what the assumption is here? The assumption is that anyone who is salt and light for Jesus Christ, like we've talked about already, 
Anyone who loves kingdom principles, like the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the persecuted. Anyone who loves these kinds of things, and Jesus is talking to them and saying, I am sending you out to be salt and to be light. You're on board with this. You're already taking care of it. The implication is that you're not angry people because you love kingdom living, but what if somebody hates you? Or what if somebody's angry at you? Here's the key questions. What do Jesus' followers do with anger somebody else has toward them? Now keep in mind, this is justified anger or not justified anger. What do you think? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Isn't that awful? Because some people get mad at anything, you know? This does not make an an assumption toward whether it's justified or not justified. This is simply Jesus saying, okay, here's the deal. You cannot be an angry person and get into heaven. You've got to have a heart transplant. And if somebody's angry at you, you still have to do something. And it doesn't matter if they're justified or not justified in their anger. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking exactly what I did when I studied through this. And that is this. I can't possibly fix somebody else's anger toward me. Maybe I can. If I can't fix somebody else's anger toward me, there is one step that I can do. I can fix my attitude toward their anger. That I can do. We buy into the idea like the switch. You make me so mad. That is an, that is, that's an impossibility for somebody to make you. You choose to be angry, right? There's no little switch in there that makes you be angry. And there's no little switch in us that makes us act one way towards somebody who's angry with us. We choose how we are gonna deal with somebody else's anger. So my question to you is, how do you deal with somebody when they're, angry about, when they're angry at you? And the answer is, anything you can do to maintain unity. This is the key principle for people who are living in the kingdom of God. We do anything we can do to maintain unity. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says this, strive for peace with, what is the next word there, church? How about just the people that aren't angry with you? Strive for peace with who? Everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it, who's he talking to now? Us. You see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Whose job is it to see to it that the people around you attain the grace of God. It's my job. You see to it that no one fails to obtain grace from God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that it may become defiled. You see to it, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, even those who are angry with you. That's hard, isn't it? Are you thinking to yourself, this is really hard? Yeah, because we live in an angry world. And people feel like they're justified in their anger, anger no matter what they're angry at. You get texts, <laughs> my favorite illustration these days, you get texts and it's almost like every text we get is, it runs a risk of making us angry, right? Because there's no emotions attached to a text. Somebody could be right, you could write this big long text to somebody and say, I'm so sorry I shouldn't have done this. I just want you to know you're the best person in my life. I love you like life itself. It's wonderful. I can't wait to see you again. And they write back and say, thanks. And you're thinking to yourself, they hate me. 
when in reality, they might be driving the car and shouldn't be writing you thanks, and that's all they can type at the time, right? So you're thinking the rest of the day, you're thinking to yourself, what did I do to offend them? Was my text not right? Did I not write the same thing? Maybe, they, they, they didn't, maybe it didn't come across the right way. So then you write back and say, are you mad at me? And they're going, no, you are mad at me. These days, it seems like it's so easy to cross the line where you get angry with somebody or they get angry with you. And we live in a world where that now is applauded. You can get angry with the government and do all kinds of stuff and people think you're a hero. Didn't used to be that way. How did Jesus deal with anger? Every illustration, you can do this at home this week if you've got uh, your devotional life that you'd like to do, but look at all the, all the times that Jesus, it says that Jesus got angry or lost his cool. Here's one in Mark 3. It's always the same. It's really funny. Mark 3, 4 says this. He said to them, the Pharisees were picking on him, trying to trap him, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save, or to, uh, save life or to kill? But they were silent. So they were picking on him and they were saying, oh, you shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. You shouldn't be working on the Sabbath. God says rest on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, are you incredibly, you idiot. <laughs> he said, let's talk about this rationally. Is it better to do good on the Sabbath or to let this, if I have the power to heal somebody or to let them suffer? Jesus was angry with them because they were, more interested in keeping the letter of the law than actually being kind to their neighbor. Look at it, it says in verse five, he looked around at them with what, church? He looked around at them with what? He was angry. He looked around at them with anger. And then what's the next word? Oy. He looked around at them with anger and then the next emotion that comes to Jesus is grief. Grief at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And Jesus restored his hand. It was a wonderful day for the man. And you know what happened? Instead of getting angry so that he hurt people, he got angry and had more compassion on people. How do you think the Pharisees felt about this whole action? You know what they did? Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him, how to kill him. You know what their anger gave birth to? Murder. You know what Jesus' anger gave birth to? Com compassion, kindness, love. And that's the difference. They got more angry. He got more loving and compassionate. Listen, you might say to me, well, Craig, I remember Jesus. He went into the temple and he turned over the tables in the temple and it was, it was anger exposed there. Now, let's talk about that for a little bit. When Jesus went in and he turned over the tables, what did he say? He said, this is a house where people come for refuge and worship. It's a house for God, where people connect with God and you have turned it into a den of robbers and thieves. They were making money off of the poor, charging them to spend time with God. And Jesus had it with that. So he turns over the temple, or he turns, he turns over the tables in the temple, but he was displaying a righteous anger toward those who were stealing, stealing from God and stealing from others. He was irritated, yes. He was frustrated, yes. But he never let his anger go to the place where he would destroy those guys because as easy as he turned over the, temp the tables, he could have made their hearts stop beating, right? But he didn't do that. In fact, I would venture to say if any one of those guys sitting at the table would come to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have been doing this, what would Jesus' reaction be to them? Forgiveness. And that's how you know. Anger births compassion, love, 
after Jesus loses his cool and he does it a couple of times. And we say that in a negative way, but it's not a negative way because anger is an emotion that came from God and we have it too, but we always cross the line and Jesus never did. He never crossed the line of bitterness. And that's the line we cross way too often. Jesus never got bitter. He never withheld forgiveness from anyone. And that's the difference. And so Jesus' recipe for how we deal with our anger is preventive maintenance. Unkept anger will destroy you and those around you. So you might say to me, well, Craig, how am I supposed to know if somebody has something against me? The worst thing you could do is go to everybody and say, are you mad at me? Oh, are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? Those kind, it's like, no, I'm not mad at you. Stop asking me, right? I just sent you a text because I was driving. That's all I did. I should have sent you like three pages. It only was a page and a half. This is an endless and futile activity about uh, seeing who's angry with you. There is an actual process in Matthew 5, 23, and this is brilliant if we get it. Look at what Jesus said. If you go and offer your sacrifice and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There are steps that we follow so that we take care of other people's anger toward us. And here they are, just in a nutshell, all five of them. You remember, there's no pretending. You leave all interactions with God because you wanna to go to your brother or your sister immediately. You be reconciled to your brother or sister as much as it depends on you, and then you come and offer your gift to the Lord. There's ways that we can find out who's angry with us. One, they tell us. Two, we discern it, or somebody else tells us. Number three, but ultimately it comes down to remember. This means that we're not pretending. You remember something has some, somebody has something against you. If it's important to them, it needs to be important to you. Now, you might think to yourself, well, Craig, some people are just angry, and they are. And for some people, they just are angry. They're gonna be angry no matter what. But if you remember you're on their hit list, it is your responsibility as a kingdom liver, <laughs> as a kingdom liver, to go to somebody and say to them, listen, if I have done anything to offend you, or maybe you know what it is, then you admit it. You go to them and you make it right. You make sure that they are good with you. Now, please understand, hurt people do things differently. If you're not hurt, you probably don't go around with a grudge on your shoulder. If you are hurt, typically you wear a grudge everywhere. And people who are hurt are very, sometimes very difficult to live with. But the easiest way to show compassion like Jesus did on them is to understand they have, may have been hurt and you may not fully understand everything they've been through. And so you go to them with a heart of compassion. They may choose to stay angry, but that has nothing to do with you. Because you remember they might have something against you and you've done everything you can to make sure you're right or they're right with you. My actions toward them have nothing to do with their choice to be angry. And some people may choose to stay angry at me and I am not responsible for that. I am responsible to make sure that I go to them and make sure that everything I know, I remember, is, is handled properly. So this has everything to do with me remembering things, all right? That's the first step. This is the way Jesus put it. If you remember somebody has something against you, then the next step is, <clears throat> we'll go to the verse. The first one is, you remember that your brother has something against you. What is the next step? Then you need to leave. 
leave your gift there. This means we take whatever it is that we're dealing with or they're dealing with us seriously. Whatever, if it matters to them, it has to matter to you. This has everything to do with the time frame so that I don't allow it to become more than an irritation. Number two, frustration, irritation, anger. So I'm doing everything I can to keep it from getting to the point of anger. So I leave my gift at the altar and I go and make things right with them. Now, what does it mean to leave your gift at the altar? Does that mean that you can be angry with somebody from Monday to Saturday, that then Saturday night you have to make it right before you get to Sunday because you wanna worship free of charge, right? You wanna worship freely from the heart. That's not what that means. No more than it means don't let the sun go down while you're angry. It doesn't mean you get to be angry for, what is it, 18 hours in a day. Hang on to it and then make it right right before you go to sleep. Instead, it has everything to do with timing. We have to make sure that things are handled quickly. Let me ask you this. When do you worship? Uh, That's an interesting question, right? What is worship? Worship is any interaction with God. Worship is me obeying God, living out kingdom principles in my life, talking with God. I'm supposed to be praying unceasingly, right? So worship apparently is supposed to go on always in my life. So if I'm to leave my sacrifice at the altar, basically what that means is anytime I'm about to have an interaction with God, which is supposed to be all the time, I need to make sure that I'm right with my brother or they're right with me. It's interesting because here Jesus refers to leaving it at the altar, but that's an Old Testament principle of looking forward to Jesus Christ. Their worship looked forward to Jesus. Our worship looks back at Jesus. Worship always focuses on Jesus. So if you're at a point in your life when you wanna worship the Lord, turn on your radio, sing, worship, pray, worship, obey, worship, tell somebody about Jesus, worship, if you're at a point where you're at that, that point, you need to understand, you, if you have some, a brother or somebody against, against you, you need to take care of that before you worship. Anytime you come to have a personal re- relationship, intimate time with the Lord. So you have to be right. Huh, it's interesting, we always think this. You don't have to just be right this way. You have to be right this way. Be right horizontally in order to be right vertically. The next step is you go to them immediately. You do everything you can to make sure that they are released from their anger and you release them from that anger. If you go on vacation and you were to leave your back door and your front door wide open for two weeks, let's say you were going to uh, the Greek islands and you decide that you're going to the Greek islands, you're taking your whole family, you're packing it all up, you got somebody to sit the dog, not sit on the dog, but watch the dog for you. And you decide before you leave, instead of locking your doors, you're gonna leave them wide open. All the doors in your house are gonna be wide open and you go to Greece for two weeks. What will you find when you come home? <laughs> yeah. Most likely, unless you live in some really spectacularly odd neighborhood, you will find several items missing from your home. You might actually find your home missing. but. The point is in this, when you remember, you go to them immediately because if you leave the doors open in your house for two weeks, something's gonna go down the tubes. It's not gonna go well. And if you leave anger open, it's not gonna go well. It's just not going to. Because if you don't deal with it immediately, then that anger is gonna fester, it's gonna burn, and it's gonna turn into something 
more difficult to handle. That's why in Ephesians 4.26, I referenced this already, be angry. Are you allowed to be angry, church? Come on, let's read the verse. Does it say, don't be angry, or does it say, be angry? Be angry, be angry angry people, firebrand. Be an angry person, all right? Be angry and do not, what, church? Sin. So be angry. Go ahead, be angry. It comes from God. It's not a bad emotion. Be angry, but don't sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because if you do, the doors are open, and the devil's going to come in, and you are going to give an opportunity for the devil to destroy your relationships. The next step is be reconciled. As much as it depends on you. The world will teach you differently than this. They will say, no, 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 no. Hold on to your rights. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Yeah. Respect yourself. Don't let somebody take advantage of you. Don't. Don't get walked on by somebody else. Protect yourself at all costs, but in the kingdom of God, it is different. In the kingdom of God, we protect unity at all costs. My job is not to change your heart. I can't do it. My job is to protect our unity. Your relationship with me and my relationship with you. So as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men and women. This was essential to Jesus in his last prayer for us, the church. Jesus prays it in John 17. We call this the high priestly prayer. Jesus actually prayed for Village Church East. Did you know that? And when he prayed for our church, for the church that would come after he ascended back to heaven, he said, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Our unity with one another is supposed to be as strong as Jesus' unity with the Father. How strong is Jesus' unity with the Father? Yeah, I mean, they are the same person. That's supposed to be our relationship with each other. Strong as the Trinity, protected at all costs. Jesus died so that we could have unity. That's why he died. We don't die to protect our rights. We die to protect our unity. Jesus did. And we are as well. We protect our own hearts against the dangers of unrestrained anger. And then we do everything we can to protect somebody else's hearts against their unrestrained anger. We don't give that anger any room to flourish. We kill it, even if we have to kill our own pride to do it. We do everything we can to protect our neighbor's hearts and we do everything we can to protect our own hearts against unrestrained anger. The formula to protect yourself against sinful anger is simply this, James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to, what is this church? First one, quick to hear, hear, slow to speak, slow to, that is the formula. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because the anger of man does not and will never produce the righteousness of God. You have to be angry and do not sin. That means you listen more than you speak. So if you go to somebody and you say, listen, do you have something against me? I know that we do. there's something not right between us. And they say, yeah, you're a real jerk. You sent me a text that said, thanks. And I, and I, I wrote you this whole thing and, and, and you're going, I have no idea what you're talking about. I seriously don't know anything. I, I got no context here at all. 
but you give them credence. You say, I had no idea I came across to you that way. I was driving in the car. I'm sorry that I just wrote thanks. I should have written to you more. I should have said, I should have said how much you meant to me because here's how much you mean to me and I'm sorry about that. You kill your pride to preserve unity. Jesus died for it and so should we. And then, you may never control anger fully, but you can always choose to love. And then after that, what do you do? Come and offer your gift. Isn't that great? Jesus doesn't hold it over you. <laughs> he doesn't say, you really screwed it up this time. I've been angry for a while. Left those doors open, see what you did. The whole family hates you now. Look, see what your anger did? Instead, Jesus says, yes, you've done everything you can to protect unity. So here's our relationship. We're good. Come, offer your gift. You may be sitting here thinking to yourself, well, Craig, some people have some things against me today. I know that they do, and I've tried to make it right. Then I would say, come and offer your gift. Come and worship. Because the stipulation is not what they do with their anger, it's what you do with your anger toward them and their anger toward you. Jesus covered all of this. He was angry and he never sinned. And because he did, he was judged as an angry person. <laughs> did you know that? He never ever lost his temper, but I do, apparently. And when I lose my temper, I sin. And when I sin, that sin needs to be paid for. And Jesus took that sin on himself, even though he never sinned a day in his life and never lost his temper once. He became sin for me. And when he died on the cross, my anger was paid for. All I need to do is embrace that. That's the message of the gospel. He took all of our sins on himself on the cross and they've all been washed away so that we can be righteous through him. All right, when Jesus uses our anger in this world, which he can, he can use it to change the world. When you demonstrate an attitude like this toward anger, you will become a blatant symbol of grace. You will be able to speak grace and to show grace to people that shouldn't and maybe don't deserve to see it. And neither do we. You have one of two options. You can get angry and let anger take its natural course. You have that option. It's never good, but you have that option. Or two, you can release grace because everyone who comes to Jesus is shown grace. Release grace into the life of somebody else. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. This is right after, by the way, the bitterness and the wrath and malice. Instead, here's the alternative. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. What's the next word there, church? Say that in two words. Tender hearted. The way you forgive somebody has to start in the heart. We lose it in our hearts and our hearts have to change. So we be kind to one another, tender hearted. And when we are tender hearted, what will be the natural flow? Be kind to one another, tender hearted. And then what will happen? Mm, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness begins in the heart because it begins with us being willing to tenderize our heart.
to allow other people to be freed from anger, like Jesus has freed us from our anger, from the penalty of anger. So if I were to ask you, how many 